when I graduated from school, I went to work for a consulting firm in Philadelphia. Hmm. And I remember sitting there and kind of staring out the window and saying to myself, you know, all I really want to do is ride my bike. That's all I really want to do right now. And if I don't, if I don't go do that, I'm going to spend the rest of my life regretting it. And I was like, okay, my life mission is to never re have regrets. And so I just kind of followed that, that mantra. I was like, okay, I'm going to go try. I'm going to like, I'm going to throw myself hundred percent into this and see what happens. Welcome to the HVMN podcast, your resource for evidence-based nutritional strategies, cognitive performance, and fitness science. Thank you for joining us. Our guest this week is Dylan Casey, a retired professional cyclist who rode alongside Lance Armstrong on the U.S. Postal Cycling Team. After winning multiple championships and playing a role in making cycling a sport the United States actually started watching, Dylan then switched career paths and began working up the tech chain. From joining Google when they only had a few hundred employees to becoming a senior director of consumer platforms at Yahoo, Dylan not only built himself a storied career, but a varied one. What was his secret? Determination, intelligence, hustle, privilege, luck? In this episode, host Jeffrey Wu explores Dylan's mindset as we go through his journey. They chat about mental fortitude and resilience, having the courage to jump up and seize opportunities, and how the U.S. Postal Cycling Team was ahead of the curve in regards to sports science. Hey, Dylan. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Jeff. You've created this great platform, which is something that I've really benefited from, and having the opportunity to actually be a participant in that overall community of like helping each other is like actually why it's so much fun. So I appreciate having <laughs> Thank you for the kind words. No, it's yeah. really generous. So to lay out the background here, you and I met at a conference in Aspen. That's right. About a year ago now. Yeah. And I think we became pretty decent friends catching up and, and chatting over ideas around human performance, elite yeah. performance. But I think what is interesting from you from a professional cycling background is that yeah. you quite early pivoted into a tech career as an early product manager at Google and yeah. then became executives at companies that we've all heard about, Yahoo and Unicorn Startups. Yeah. And that puts you in a very unique, maybe rarefied <laughs> territory where you were a elite world-class athlete and also an elite world-class tech executive yeah. and company builder. And maybe to set the frame for yourself. I mean, how, sure. what do you think of yourself? Like, how do you describe yourself? Or is that just too complicated? Like, you can't label yourself. Looking inward, I have a completely different perspective than someone who may be reading my resume and establishing what it means. Because for me, I'm just chasing the dream. And whether that was as a professional athlete or working in the tech industry, which was also for me, something that I was always very passionate about. I don't feel like there's anything special about me. So the narrative for yourself is that you were always pursuing the dream, which is this broad definition that you wanted to be the best possible version of yourself or some iteration of that. Yeah, and that dream evolved from cycling with Lance and the US Postal Service team yeah. to working with the early Google employees, building out right. the top five companies in the world, yep. to now working at leading big product organizations at top tech companies to, I mean, obviously that vehicle has shifted a lot, but I guess from your perspective, it's like, I never set out to do those things. Hmm. They weren't goals. And of course, the contradiction is that I love goals. <laughs> I love the process around achieving goals. I love the work. I love the feedback mechanism, which is really how I discovered cycling and how I became so passionate about it was because I found this thing that when I did work, there was this very tangible and objective result, which is I got faster. Hmm. 
And that was incredibly addictive for me, almost in actually addiction. Like I just loved that whole feedback mechanism. But there were a lot of things that happened before that. And for those that don't know my story, I came into the sport much later relative to my peers, guys that I went on to become teammates with on the U.S. Postal Service had all mostly started when they were young children, especially the Europeans. They didn't go to college. I went to college. I didn't discover cycling until I was in college. It was kind of a hobby. Back to the idea of chasing my dreams. When I graduated from school, I went to work for a consulting firm in Philadelphia. Hmm. And I remember sitting there and staring out the window and saying to myself, all I really want to do is ride my bike. That's all I really want to do right now. If I don't go do that, I'm going to spend the rest of my life regretting it. And I was like, okay, my life mission is to never have regrets. And so I kind of followed that mantra. I was like, okay, I'm going to go try. I'm going to throw myself 100% into this and see what happens. Yeah. And that was really what I did. And like every year I would get a little bit better. Then I started setting these goals for myself. Okay, if I can get here, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. And then the next year, if I can get here, I'm going to keep going. In fact, the U.S. Postal team seemed so far out of the realm of possibility for me. I was trying to get on a bigger pro team here in the U.S. And the U.S. Postal Service came along and I think I actually got turned down by the protein that I wanted to go on because I was dating this girl and the thought of going to live in Europe was scary. And the thought of competing on this world stage, I didn't think I was good enough and I didn't get the job with the local team and I got an offer to go race in Europe and I took it. And it's interesting because- And I, how old were you at the time? I was 25, 26. Especially in the context of elite sport, because that's super rare, right? So I guess you started just cycling as a hobby when you're yeah. what, early 20s, late yeah. teen, like 19, 20, 21. Yeah. Within five years, you're competing at the highest level. Yeah. And as you're saying, especially in this day where people start optimizing when they're kids, when they're like five. Right. So there was some talent there, I guess, in terms of your genetics or some disposition. Did you play sports in high school, like soccer Not or really? something? No, I did a couple of things. I was actually mostly into riding my skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> so like a skater punk I kid. grew up in Walnut Creek, California, okay. you know, after living in Oakland as a young child. But I think ultimately... In hindsight, I just didn't have anything that I was super passionate about in school. In fact, the only reason I went to college is because all my friends were going. Mm. And I figured, well, I should go. Right. Back to what I said earlier, I didn't really have any of these goals, which is so weird for me to say. Because you've done a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of stuff that, and really the key to a lot of the success that I've had is by setting these goals. Right. I knew right away, especially when I got to the elite level, that I wasn't as physically gifted as people like Lance and George Hincapie and Christian Vandeveld and, you know, all these guys that I ultimately went on to become teammates with. In what way? Just in terms of VO2 max, in terms of power output, what, just like size? Yeah. You just know your limits. So these are like, okay, these people are putting out some power and speed that a little bit yeah. foreign to me. Yeah, I just knew. I still had my success. I had things that I was good at. Yeah. I was, I won races and on that day was better than everybody else. I won the national championships a couple of times in the time trial and the pursuit. I won races in Europe um, and beat guys that were better than me. And in fact, maybe that was one of the reasons that I was really loved bike racing is because you don't always have to be the strongest to win. Yeah. Now you got to be the strongest to win the Tour de France <laughs> or other races like that. It was just something that came to me and I was so 
motivated and so passionate about it. Which is incredible. So as you're doing a consulting job, I mean, was there a point where I was like, okay, I'm going to just go full-time train? Yeah. I was like, okay, that's it. I'm moving back to Palo Alto. My girlfriend was going to Stanford at the time. You just left your job. Yeah, you're yeah. going to live out of a couch or just live off your savings. Money. I didn't have any money. I, I had a student loan to pay back. Damn. Okay. I, mean, I remember a race, I think it was in Pennsylvania yeah. in Altoona. And there was a really big prize money race in Seattle the next weekend. I didn't have any money to get from Altoona to Seattle. So I looked on the prize list for the race the next day in Altoona to find out which place I needed to get in order to pay for the plane ticket to fly to Seattle. To keep the ball rolling, yeah. I got to get third place or better to have a ticket to, to Seattle. So I was getting third place or better no matter what. Yeah. I mean, it was like literally three laps to go. And I was like, I'm taking this guy to the curb because no matter what, I'm getting third place or better. And sure enough, I think I got second. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a little extra money. But yeah. I mean, it was just that mentality that I think has really stuck with me. Yeah. And I've been able to use that experience in a lot of the things that I've done in the tech industry. It's very similar. Yeah. No, it just reminds me. I mean, obviously, Jeff Bezos has a famous regret minimization framework. He talks about optimizing for minimizing regret. And I think that's a pretty mm -hmm. popular concept. But it's like sounds very similar to how you approach some of these problems. Yeah. And I think it sounds like it's almost a bit of a greedy algorithm. And I use it in, a, in sure. the sense of a computer science term, not like, yeah. you know, someone physically greedy. In terms of getting second place or third place and better was just like the most important immediate problem that you needed to solve to get to Seattle. Right. And you went 120% into that. Right. So it's kind of this interesting balance of you have this long arc of minimizing regret, but it sounds like as you pursued that minimization of regret, you're like, you're very thoughtful, like the next step. And it sounds like you were able to stack up a lot yeah. of these next steps. Yeah. Was that kind of that dichotomy of long-term and short-term optimizations? Yeah. It's where I really truly understood and appreciated the concept of micro and macro yeah. and how they're correlated. In that week of like, okay, I got to get to the next race. I also had a big picture of what I was trying to accomplish, which was okay, get enough results to get a bigger contract or get onto a bigger team and have more opportunity. And that really narrow focus actually helped me to be successful. And I think it's something that stuck with me throughout my entire tech career, which is like having a super narrow focus and just being ruthless about execution, almost in a way that is not necessarily always positive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can be so focused and so ruthless about what you're saying no and yes to that there's collateral damage. Yeah. And you got to be willing to tolerate that. But I feel like in this generation, this day and age, I think people want to be too generalist. Or I think you talk yeah. about like really focusing. And I feel like with a younger generation, there's this notion that everyone wants to be like a generalist manager or product manager right. or all right. this stuff. And they don't want to get their hands dirty being really expert right. and focus on one specific aspect of the task. Right. Which I think we should talk about in more of the tech career. I don't want to skip sure. between the U.S. Postal Service yeah. journey. When you were 26, you get signed to the USPS team. And these are some of the, I guess now, some of the most famous cyclists, period. Right. What was that? What year was this? 1999. So it was before, before like crazy Lance, heydays. It was before Lance won the tour. Okay. Even though we were a Division One team, World Tour team, Pro Tour team, whatever the nomenclature is now, we were really kind of the bad news bears of Europe. Okay. The team had some success. It, it was kind of the underdog American team. Okay. We had 16 riders on the team. 
Yeah. There's eight riders in a race. And so we were running dual programs at the same time. So all 16 guys were racing at the same time because in Europe, there's oftentimes multiple races happening every weekend. Okay. And just the fact that we made it through the whole year was a miracle. Like injuries, most guys didn't get injuries. Everybody wasn't sick at the same time. Right. There were a bunch of impossible odds that we overcame. Yeah, a lot of logistics. That. I mean, it was like an AB team or did you guys uh, switch people over? It depended on the race. And obviously the only thing that mattered to the team was winning the Tour de France. And so there were some guys that were on the long team for the tour. So you would get lumped into that program right. and you would do races that were meant to build up for that program. Yeah. And then there were the classics and it was very complicated. And in a lot of ways, we were trying to figure it out along the way. Yeah. But that's where really getting focused on testing and optimizing was critical. Thinking about, of course, now analytics and growth, and this is such a topic du jour for the tech industry. And actually for what you guys are doing here at Human with human optimization, like we were doing that like 20 years ago. Yeah. We were so focused on metrics and feedback and so focused on data. Um, and in fact, it was our competitive advantage in that particular sport is that we were really focused on the details. I'd love to talk more about that in the sense that, okay, 1999, yeah. which is 20 years ago now. 20 years ago, um, yeah. I mean, sports science was probably just up and coming. I think just talking to folks in this field, I mean, yeah. there was no such thing as sports science. It was just like physiology, biology. And then there wasn't even that much money in professional sports. So there was not enough science around it. I guess in the late yeah. 90s, that probably was just starting to come up. Yeah. Also curious to hear about that snapshot in time where Really, I would say the USPS team made cycling. I don't know what it was like. You know, I yeah. was probably, what, like 10 at the time. Hmm. I want to just set our listeners mm -hmm. back in, in, into that time. What was it like yeah. in terms of the sport, in terms of the perception of USPS team? Obviously, if Lance hasn't won his first tour, he was not a yeah. global phenomenon yet. In terms of the state of the actual sport, the yeah. metrics, the tracking, Kirsa here about the sophistication there. Obviously, we had a blog post about the history where the earliest Tour de France's people would be drinking beer at stops. Yeah, and smoking cigarettes. Exactly. And then it became more and more sophisticated. Yeah. So curious to hear the snapshot in 1999. Yeah. So I really grew up on the local domestic scene and I had a couple trips with the national team to Europe, but I really didn't race in Europe a lot until I went over with the Pulse team. So I think Americans in general were a little bit more advanced than the Europeans, for sure. I remember when I went over there, they were still telling us things like you can't eat warm bread because it'll grow in your stomach and <laughs> you're not allowed to have ice in your water. Like all these weird urban legends right. that were just didn't make any sense. And even Postal, when I went to the team, was, was still a little bit, in my mind, antiquated. Right. right. The staff was very European. There was still a lot of the European mentality. But Lance and actually Johan Bruniel, who was the director at the time, had a different approach. We were one of the first teams to start using power meters as a team. I think individuals had used it as a team and really build our entire program around the power meter methodology and the concept of power zones. And of course, I think that was a evolution of heart rate training and heart rate zones, but really understanding lactic threshold, understanding and a response to training, you know, looking at a lot of the stress markers that so your body produces. So you're doing like the CO2, O2 breath tests and tracking your heart rate. In, yeah. the in 1999, you guys were doing that. Oh yeah, we were doing VO2 max tests. We were doing lactate threshold tests. Okay. And we were also really looking at a lot of the markers of stress in our blood tests you could identify, okay, wait, you're overtraining, like you need to back off. 
And so we were starting to adopt a lot of the principles that today are just breathing. Right. It's like so standard. So like basic. what markers are you were you popular at the time? Like what cortisol? Cortisol, I think a bunch of the liver enzymes. EST, some of the, okay. Exactly. Obviously we were super focused on some of the amino acids or protein breakdown maybe for overtraining. Exactly. All the teams had extensive medical staff and trainers that were uh, starting to become pretty sophisticated. Okay. I mean, what's crazy is that in the last 20 years, it's become like orders of magnitude more sophisticated. Yeah. Just when you think that the races aren't going to get faster or anything, they do. Yeah. You know? I mean, like if you look at the times on the track for our team pursuit right now, they're going sub 350, three minutes and 50 seconds for four kilometers from a standing start. Okay. Which is, in my mind, superhuman. <laughs> we were going in the mid four minutes. And that was world class. World was as fast as you could go. But it's because of being so methodical about the approach and so focused. And now there's way more tools available. Yeah. It wasn't just about nutrition. It wasn't just about understanding the response to training stimulus, but we were focused on our equipment. We were focused on traveling and sleeping and jet lag. A lot of the things that now are in the biohacking right. community. And it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the time that we're in right now is because all of the stuff that I was thinking about 20 years ago as an athlete yep. is becoming so mainstream. And it's not just about excelling at sport, but it's just excelling at life. Yep. You know, I mean, for me, that's why this is such an interesting time. And I think it's also the tools are much more ubiquitous, right? Like at the time you needed a physiologist and professional medical staff to like right. administer the stuff for you. Oh yeah, like just with the aura ring and the ability to yeah, see yeah. HRV and yep. the readiness score and just kind of the correlation between behavior and how it impacts your sleep. I mean, I wish I had that when I was racing because it totally changed my approach. Yeah, so it sounds like even at 99, so you guys are at the cutting edge of sports science. Yeah. And that you would say is the main edge above other teams. I mean, it sounds like everyone is optimized. I mean, the, like one of the definitions I like about sport is that everyone's trying to find some advantage over everyone else. Yeah. That's competition. I think in that particular point in time, one of the advantages that we had as a team above and beyond the fact that we had some of the best cyclists in the world and Lance obviously being one of them is that we had a very unorthodox approach. And everybody else was basically operating the same way that cycling teams have been operating for decades. Right. And I even remember my first training camp, sitting down with Johan and the other general manager, preparing what the schedule was going to be that year. Like, what races was I going to do? And I, and I remember asking him, like, when do I get my time trial bike? What do you mean? When do you get to have your time trial bike? I'm like, well, I need to have my time trial bike at home so I can train on it. And they looked at me like I was crazy, right? Because this is just something that people didn't do back then. Like you got your time trial bike 10 minutes before the time trial started. And I had always prepared meticulously by training on my time trial bike yeah, all make, the time. Makes sense, right? Like totally fight with the prepare for how you're going to fight. Exactly. And so that was just such a foreign concept. <laughs> and of course, we changed it. Like eventually everybody got a time trial bike that you got to have at home and you could train on it and you could prepare on it and, yeah. and get very focused on all these little details about the equipment. And yeah. that was something that we did that nobody else did. And of course, yeah. now everybody does it. And the other key thing is Lance and Johan were famous 
for previewing the course ahead of time. Mm. That was something that they didn't do. Yeah. Now, of course, every team does it. Yeah, every, you got to visualize the whole thing. Everybody does. I remember watching some documentary. They're just like driving yeah. the route. I think a lot of it just had to do with the fact that we challenge the status quo all the time. I mean, it makes so much sense in retrospect, which is like what brilliance is, right? Something that's obvious. Well, you have but to have a, a, You guys were professionals. It's basically what it was. Like, of course, you're going to race this route. You know what the route is. Take a look to see exactly what the route is. It seems obvious, but yeah. when we were in the middle of it, it was scary. We were going against the convention, right? And so challenging the status quo took a lot of courage huh. because it would have been much easier to do what everybody else did, right? Because then you're kind of limiting your exposure to blame. Right. Like if we had done all these things and failed. It's like, oh yeah, you guys change all this stuff and you guys suck. Yeah, you guys didn't follow the rules. Yeah. You guys didn't follow the normal convention. Yeah. It's actually one of the things that I really appreciated about tech industry. Right. Especially sure when I got into it in 2003, 2004 is because this was like the land of breaking the rules yeah. you know, or not following convention. Yeah. Let's so fast forward the time a little bit. Yeah. So when did things change for you and the postal service? Obviously, I imagine after the first tour, yeah. was there like a pop off in interest and excitement and hype? Oh, I mean, all of a sudden we went from what was that being like? nobodies to being like total rock stars and a lot of that had to do with lance yeah because i mean not only did he win the tour de france but i mean people just loved him and the sport loved him and from a business perspective the sport loved him yeah. i mean talk about changing an entire industry yeah we went from being at the races in rented motorhomes to being at the races in a huge bus right right the profile of the team completely changed it was literally like a dream come true. Was it added motivation or was it distraction? I mean, did it become like a rock star lifestyle where it was like Not we actually really. fans or it was just like, okay, now we have more pressure? It was more pressure, you know? I mean, it wasn't like after the races, we were hanging out at the hotel partying. Yeah. We were like, how do we get home as quickly as possible so we can recover and start training the next day and prepare for the next race? But for me personally, it was hard. It's especially hard for Americans and Australians just people that have to go and live in Europe and travel so far from home. I just had a lot of different things in the back of my mind that were kind of nagging me about what I was going to do after cycling. I think I had this feeling that I didn't want to work in the bike industry after my cycling career was over. I just felt like I had other things I wanted to do. And it wasn't a total conscious decision to retire and start a new career. It was kind of a series of events that happened in the perfect sequence. And I was in the, the right place at the right time that it happened. Yeah, tell us that story. I mean, so it sounds like 2003, 2004, you retired yeah. and yeah. you went out up at Google, yeah. which in terms of timing is well, you know, it's pretty funny. damn oh, smart. God. I mean, <laughs> like in hindsight, it was like talk, the biggest Grand Slam lottery of all time. And in fact, my teammates give me the most credit, not for races I won or, or races I helped them win, but for leaving the sport at the right time and starting at Google. I guess you avoided kind of the bombshell, obviously, of the elf in the room there with, yes. the, with the doping. And then I guess you entered in a I did. very I did. early stage. I was very fortunate to avoid a lot of that, you know, even though I was a part of that whole program and I take full responsibility for the decisions I made and whatever consequences I had to pay or have to pay as a result of that. That's a tough conversation, especially now that I have kids that are getting into sport. You know, my older one, he knows the story. But for whatever reason, I woke up one day and made the decision to leave the sport. 
start at the very bottom at an entirely new industry. Ironically, my girlfriend at the time was working at Apple and she managed to get me an interview. In fact, it was funny because a recruiter called me one day and this was like over the Christmas holiday, which is the off season for professional cycling. I was at home during a time that I would always be home and all of a sudden, and I hadn't quite made the decision to retire yet. Yeah. And I got a call from a recruiter at Apple and I was caught off guard by it, but all of a sudden the idea got planted like, oh. That's pretty random, right? Like you're a professional cyclist. Well, no, but my girlfriend had submitted my resume. Oh, they referred you. Exactly. She referred me for this But your resume was like cycling, dude. Exactly. So (laughs) I think that planted the seed, this idea that, okay, I could make this transition. Mm -hmm. I went to do the interview and I was so excited about the job and so excited about Apple having been an early adopter and my first laptop was a PowerBook 160 or something like that. Right. Ironically, all the guy wanted to talk about in the interview was Lance and the team. And I was so annoyed because I was <laughs> like, wait, I've like done all this preparation for the interview to tell you why I'm the best candidate for this role. He and talk shop. Yeah, he just wanted to talk shop and I didn't get the job. And in parallel, so during that whole process, I had a friend that worked at Google and he helped me get the interview. And in Heinz, it turns out that the only reason I was given the interview was a favor to my friend. It's like one of those things like, fine, we'll interview him. There's no way, he, like he doesn't make the paper cut. He right. didn't go to Stanford or doesn't have a computer science degree. Right. Like he does not fit the template. And they gave me the interview and I learned later that I just out interviewed everybody. Damn. You know, once I got my foot in the door, I was in. What was the first title? Was it a product role? No, I started in the marketing department, maybe marketing coordinator or something like that. I mean, okay. it was literally the proverbial mailroom. Okay. You couldn't start any lower at Google than the (laughs) position I was in. In that time, how big was Google? I think we were maybe three or 400 at the most in Mountain View. And maybe we had a couple of hundred in sales offices in other parts of the world, but it was, it was really small and it felt really small. It's funny. You know what? I read this quote the other night. I actually had to copy it so that I could remember it because it's become so representative of a lot of the things that have happened to me and the story that I'm telling you now, but I'll read it for you. So there are things out of our control that sort of redirect us to outcomes greater than we would have initially chosen for ourselves. And so like this was one of them. I didn't necessarily say, oh, I'm going to retire from being a professional cyclist and go work at Google. It just kind of happened. I mean, in retrospect, do you feel like there's some destiny or you think that's like you're dumb lucky or you created that luck? I believe 100% that a significant part of the success that I have had has been due to luck or serendipity or being in the right place at the right time. And at the same time, being open to those opportunities, like listening to the signal. I have a good friend of mine who is an engineer and we made up this concept of the vector field, right? Okay. It's this concept that you're kind of headed in the direction and you bounce off of things along the way. Yeah, have some bigger vectors, bigger currents. Exactly, and we would joke that like, you know, I remember this one time we were in Florida for something and we had no idea where to go to dinner. And we just looked at each other, we're like, well, let's ask the vector field. And the vector <laughs> field in that particular case was like, we're sitting at the bar, we asked the bartender, okay, can you please tell us where we should have dinner tonight? You know what I mean? And he was the vector. Yeah. And we would just follow it. And it it turns out that if you really paid attention and if you asked the right people the right questions, you'd end up where you're supposed to go. It's this kind of intrinsic appreciation for serendipity that I think has served me well. Yeah. So at the time, like I think Google now is like, what, a couple hundred thousand employees worldwide now. So just basically one, two percent first employees over at Google. Yeah. 
Did you know that it was a special company? I mean, it sounded like not really. Kind of knew you wanted to maybe retire from cycling. Yeah, listen to this vector field a little bit, bounce yeah. around, got a favor to interview. Yeah, the kind of the ground floor. Yeah, was it like oh, okay, Google? Maybe I kind of know about the search engine at the time. Were you thinking, oh, maybe I should go to what, yeah. you know, Microsoft or another company at the time? It's so funny. It's I feel like I'm telling the same story yeah. over and over because I didn't. I knew about search engines and yeah. I kind of understood why they were important. You know, I remember using Gopher, you know, to get around the web when I was in college. <laughs> and this is stuff that pre Ask Jeeves? No, I remember using I don't Ask Jeeves Ask first. Ask Jeeves was around. I mean, okay. it, like literally this is how I was getting around the various intranets that were available to university students. Yeah. But I knew enough. I had been paying close enough attention to what was happening in Silicon Valley. Having I was a resident a month or two out of the year. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but I knew that Google was on something. I just remember when I met people there and I was going through the interview process that they were so focused on results and it was so objective. There was no subjectiveness. It didn't matter what I wore to the interview. Clearly, the people that were interviewing me weren't focused on what they were wearing, you know, right. just as, as an illustrative example. But it was all about like, okay, how do you think? How are you going to respond to this situation, this question? If I ask you the classic, how many ping pong balls fit in a 747, are you going to yeah. crumble? Like, I just appreciated that focus on the actual substance as opposed to... Did I wear a suit and a tie? Right. And did I ask the right questions? And did I follow up with the thank you emails and stuff like Which that? Which probably felt really familiar to professional sport. That's right. It's just like results. Yeah. You win the race, yeah. get the job. And again, being bold enough to say, I've never worked at a company, but I know I can be successful here. Yeah. I went in and I said that. Yeah. I said, look, I have all these trophies and medals on the wall and they're 100% transferable to what I'm going to do here at Google. <laughs> Which is not obvious. No. <laughs> but you're like, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I said, I can do this. Yeah. I'm like, there's nobody better on the planet than me for this job. <laughs> I will just outwork everybody. Yeah. It's interesting, of course, I remember in my first couple of like performance reviews with my manager, he would yeah. tell me that your confidence is really intimidating. And I thought that that was so bizarre because I was so insecure huh. relative to everybody that I was working with because they were all PhDs and like just wicked smart computer scientists right. and like the inventor of XYZ standard or language or I just felt like such a small person. And, but to get that kind of feedback was really fascinating. But I think it's also there's a story I love to tell about athlete and you'll hear this. Go to any start line of any race and you'll hear people talking about how they didn't sleep well the night before. Mm, yep. Or I haven't been training as much as I wanted to. Yep. They're just basically self-disqualifying. Yeah, they're sandbagging themselves. So they're they have, they have a bad race. Like, ah, yeah. I, I didn't try enough. Yeah. And I remember just being really curious about that because I had remember points in, in races. You know, these races are like six, seven hours long in some cases. And in your mind, you go through so many different emotional states. And I can remember being in races where I was like, God, I wish I could get a flat tire right now. <laughs> or like, I just, I don't want to be here. I don't feel good. I want to quit. And what you I would want tell- Any me, reason to quit. Any reason right. to quit that you could somehow attribute yeah. to like outside yourself. Yep. You know, like I got a flat or my chain broke or whatever. And then I just started, like what I would do is when I got into that moment, I would just say, Dylan, remember your goals. Remember your goals, remember your goals. I would repeat it to myself, like yep. a mantra. I would for literally 15 minutes, I'd be sitting there saying, remember your goals, remember your goals, remember your goals. And it worked. 
And a couple of times it worked. So then I remembered every time, okay, when you start feeling like crap in a race or you're at the start line and you want to start complaining about how things haven't been going right, just say, I feel great. I'm going to crush it today. I am going to kill these guys. Yeah. Even if you don't believe yourself, if you just say it, it actually works. works. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of us have felt that situation before. Like you just want an excuse to tap out. Right. You need to rationalize an excuse yeah. It feels like it's honorable to be like, okay, I give up or like this yeah. was my day. Right. right. And you just need to have that extra fortitude, that extra bravery or courage. Be like, no, not today. Yeah. Like I'm going to push through that. And I think it's, it's refreshing to hear from someone who obviously a lot of success, both in sport and tech, that it is kind of like, okay, just have that extra courage to say, yeah. no, I'm not going to tap out to an excuse. Yeah. That's probably the number one factor that has been part of my success in this second career is just having courage. Yeah. It is really hard, discipline and focus, all those things. I still make huge mistakes. I'm so like hard on myself, but I think as an athlete, the difference between the people that are successful and aren't, I think has everything to do with how you handle setback. Like you are going to have setbacks. And how you deal with those setbacks has a bigger influence on your overall success than how you deal with the good days. Yeah. And I think that that's true for anything. I feel like for myself, I am more forgiving on mistakes because I think there's a realization that you make a lot of decisions with incomplete information all the time. Yeah. And you're going to make some bad calls at some point. Yeah. And if you just forgive that there will be some bad decisions, you've. I, I feel like that's a more resilient, more sanguine outlook on life because like right. if you just beat yourself up so hard for like one mistake and you just like crush your, all your momentum yeah like that stops you from progressing forward yeah i'm curious obviously you need to have to be tough on yourself to be world-class on anything how do you articulate that to yourself how do you have that discipline to be hard on yourself because you want to aspire at the top levels yeah but not be so hard or not have any forgiveness where the first time you mess up, you're like, I am terrible person. Yeah. I cannot do it. I give up. Probably some of it comes from my childhood where my coping mechanisms were just to move on, forget about it. Probably in an unhealthy way, <laughs> honestly, right? Where it was like something bad would happen to me or I would be disappointed with something. Yeah. And instead of dealing with it or wallowing in it, I would just put it out of my mind and move on. I would just start over. And in fact, my wife will probably tell you that I'm such an optimist to a fault because like I just have this innate ability to only remember the good things. It's yeah. probably some sort of mental self-protection circuit breaker. Yeah. But then the flip side of that coin is you're unstoppable. It, like you, I, you won't quit. Yeah, I won't quit. Maybe I'll pause for a while, maybe I'll do something else and like the things that I really want, I just feel like I'll get it. Yeah. And I'm just determined. But a lot of that it's tricky cuz Like now I have kids, I have a 13 year old boy, Cole, and and an eight year old daughter named Sloan. And I look at them as they struggle and they kind of deal with the various challenges that they're confronted with. I try to think of like, okay, how do I help them learn that they're going to experience setback? And it's the tools that you create to manage that setback that are going to be the major influences and determinations on their future. Yeah. It's so hard because like even in my own story, I don't know how to recreate it. Right. You know, like I see these parents of kids, you know, they're all trying to make them into the next pro whatever and think to myself, I'm like, I couldn't recreate myself, like my path. I couldn't. And by over-optimizing or over-protecting, you might just 
reduce their ability to cope and actually be resilient. Right. I mean, I don't have children, but I think it is an interesting concept. How would you reorient your own personality, right? And I think one of the things that I think more people should be open to is that you can retrain your thought patterns and evolve how you think. And I think it's interesting as you have children or you're building a community, how do you pass along some of those principles down? It is interesting that to hear in common discussion that with a lot of professional athletes or folks in military, it feels like culture is softer or people are weaker than they used to be. Right. I don't know if that's something that people always talk about the next generation. Yeah. But I think there might be something to that where as people go to Stanford, you hear people talking about like helicopter parents. Mm-hmm. You, people are optimizing the hell out of their kids. I mean, people, I guess right. the college kind of people are bribing their way sure. into school, protecting kids from actual setbacks. Hey listeners, if you're enjoying this episode thus far, please consider writing a review on our iTunes page. It really does help increase the visibility of our podcast. That's really the best way to support our work. In appreciation for your review, we'll hook you up with $15 of HVMN store credit. We also love it when we see you guys share our episodes that you've enjoyed on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And we often reshare those posts. Just tag us at our handle at HVMN. Now back to the show. When I think about the criticism for the things that we did as yeah. professional cyclists yeah. and the scrutiny that we came under, which, you know, is warranted, but look at what people are willing to do to get their kids into college. I know. It's both scary and I think illustrative of where we are right now. Yeah. I didn't know there's like 20 years of jail for like right. getting the comic. Oh man, you know, you can assault people and not get that much time in the cell. So like, I don't know how to equate all of that stuff. That. I think my main point I was getting to was that it is like something that you're still figuring out, but how do you translate that resilience? Cause it sounded like you're able to work through a lot of resilience. And I don't know if you had mentors, your parents or guidance with friends to help you process that resilience? Mm -hmm. Or was it something that was sort of self-taught? You just hit stuff and punch through. And from that, how do you translate that? Yeah. Because I think to me, you have to eat pain to realize a real lesson. Yeah. And maybe you have some sense of this as well. Like there's so much startup business books and like just Paul Graham essays around like what you should think about when you hire. Hire slowly, fire quickly. Uh, Don't burn money to build something people want. And it's like, obvious you read it like that makes sense right and then you're just like i don't know what it actually means because you never like did the wrong thing i think there's there's actually like real meat and juice to like doing the wrong thing and messing it up like you actually learn what that very simple statement actually means i have a saying that suffering has purpose yeah right and suffering is the way that i think of it is very positive and but the word i don't think has very positive connotations to it but you know there's this place that you go to and i think this is especially true for endurance athletes where you're just by yourself in your own head yeah and your only limits are the ones you have that you've set for yourself there's this real zen state that you get into when you're in this mode of suffering and you persevere through it because there's a goal there's an objective That's one of the things that I aspire to try to teach, whether it's my children or the people that I work with, or, you know, now that I'm responsible for a team of people, how do I inspire them to push through their own limitations? How do I help them persevere through their obstacles? Because I don't think I'm going to be successful by telling people what to do or by handing them tasks. I think my greatest success is going to come from inspiring people to achieve more than they think they can do on their own. In fact, that's what I did as an athlete. I figured out a way to achieve more than I thought I was capable of. Yeah. That was it. 
And then I learned over the years in the tech industry, going from an individual contributor to a manager, that my role now, my superpower now is how do I get teams to exceed their own limits? Yeah. And a lot of that is just through a lot of these different tools that I've acquired, which to your point, seems so clear. And like, of course that makes sense. Yeah. You see like the Paul Graham pithy statements, yeah. like, oh yeah, like, you yeah, know, self-evident. Like prioritizing, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I said earlier, narrow focus and focus on execution. Like, oh, there's a million good ideas, but it ultimately comes down to the teams or individuals that know how to execute and operate. And of course that makes sense, but it's so hard to do. Yeah. It's the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Came up with this, other, it's going to be on my tombstone, but... <laughs> It's better be good. And I think I kind of created it in my head in these moments of being in races in Europe where I was like off the back, you know, not even in the race and just surviving to get to the finish line. It took me a while to come up to it, but here it is. So the sweet taste of victory is afforded to those who can eat bitterness, nice. right? I'm being very repetitive yeah. in a lot of the stuff that I'm saying, but I totally believe in it. Yeah. It's my North Star to the degree that I can try to inspire others to kind of go to that same place. It's super rewarding to me. Yeah. So one of the things that as I've been talking to folks like you and working with folks that are very elite athletes, I definitely sense the fact that when you're doing something like an endurance race or by yourself for a couple hours, it is very lonely and there's like yeah. this constant chattering in your own head. Yeah. And some of the advice that I've gotten is that you have to talk yourself into liking that bitterness, liking yeah. that pain. Yeah. People call it the pain cave. Yeah. Like you Obviously, you figure out what are your tips to enjoy that pain or enjoy that bitterness? Because I think there's absolutely, that's the difference between someone who cuts through. It's like, yeah. okay, you were able to eat that pain and you taste the sweet, sweetness of victory. Everyone else can't push through. Yeah. It's genetic. Well, I think it's like systems theory, right? There's so many inputs and the system is ultimately looking for equilibrium. Yeah, That's kind of a, a geeky way to describe it. But for me, I found some sort of satisfaction and reward in the feedback loop. And I think it was because it was like, I have control. If I do the work, I'll get this response. Yeah. And the podium was just the result. You know, that was the thing that validated the feedback loop. It wasn't the end result, right? Like right. that wasn't the reason to do it. The reason to do it was because I really thrived in this feedback loop. Yeah. And so I think the way that that translates is to really find out what makes you feel good, what makes you feel rewarded. One of the ways that I try to connect with people when I'm working with them is I try to figure out what do you really like? Why are you doing this? Like, what do you really want to get out of this? Yeah. Like what makes you excited in the morning to come to work or to, yeah. or to do whatever it is that you're doing? Because it's always something else other than I want to get a promotion or I wanted this job or I want to win this award. Yeah. The, I don't think that while those things are true, I don't think that that's the main motivation for most people. I think there's something more intrinsic. Yeah. And if you can figure that out, you can really help people. In my last job, I had this incredibly smart, ambitious, talented person on my team. And he would be so upset in our one-on-ones about the fact that like other people weren't working as hard as he was. And he was working crazy hours and everybody else was going home at 5.30. And I asked him, I'm like, you know, tell me why that matters to you so much. Why is it so upsetting to you? Do you want to work less? Or do you feel like you're picking up the slack? You know, what's the deal? And he said, no, 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 I just really need this company to be successful so that I can make a lot of money. He's like, because otherwise it's not worth it. Like I'm killing myself. Yeah. And, you know, the only thing that matters is how much the stock is going to be worth. And I was like, whoa, okay, like let's hit the reset button. 
pretend for a moment I'm not your manager. I'm just like a friend telling you some wisdom, if you will. I'm like, if the only thing that matters to you is what the stock price or what the financial outcome of all of this work that you're doing, you're going to be incredibly disappointed when you get there. I believe you're going to get there, but you're going to be super disappointed. I'm like, the thing that you should focus on the most right now and that you will care about the most in 10, 15, 20, 30 years looking back are the experiences that you have right now and the story and the anecdote that you're going to get to tell. Now, whether it's in your next job interview or it's when you're sitting around the campfire with your grandkids, this is what's going to matter to you. So think about that. Think about the story that you're going to get to tell. And I honestly believe that. You know, it's like funny, early days Google, we weren't allowed to look at the stock price. You know what I mean? It's like banned on the computers. It was. Or just like a soft band. There was no stock tickers anywhere. Yeah. And it was like, don't focus on that. That's not the thing to think about. Yeah. That reminds me like very much a similar philosophy. I articulate in a little bit different way, but I think about it process over outcome, Mm -hmm. just really refined mastery around your skill set and what you want to be world class at yeah. and how the outcome be the side effect. Yeah. But if you're chasing a goal and then oftentimes that goal is not controllable, like a stock price right. or beating someone in particular, like yeah. you cannot control their life and what they're doing. Yeah. But what you can control is your own process. The second part that I want to respond to is I think we're relatively lucky that we can choose to spend our time to something that we want to have mastery of. I'm just wondering, and I know some people will be thinking back of their head, well, what if they need to just like make money? Yeah. And I don't know if I have a good answer about that because I've been thinking about this kind of more macro, maybe we zoom out a bit more philosophical and socially, but it's like, I would say that probably most Americans and most people in general just like probably don't even like what they're doing. Yeah. And that just might be a fact of yeah. Society's kind of messed up and yeah. we're not going to solve this in this conversation, yeah. but curious to at least open up that can of worms around, okay, I think to be relatively lucky in terms of even having a way to be able to focus on the process, but some people just got to get the money to pay the bills. Yeah, you're 100% right. I consider myself to be incredibly lucky and fortunate. I feel so rich yeah. because I have choices, right? I can make choices. Yeah. And I think that that's like the ultimate reward. You know, I think there are a lot of people that are in really hard circumstances and it like tugs at my heartstrings all the time when I see people that are in tough situations. And I get a lot of inspiration from people that, for example, they don't have as many options. They don't have as many choices. They work a job that they don't like and they don't get any personal satisfaction out of it. But then you look at the effort that they go through to have a huge barbecue with the family on Sundays, right? Or the fact that they're trying to play on the local softball team at the park at 10 p.m. on a Thursday night because that's so important to them. Yeah. So I really appreciate it when I see people doing that because I think it's just another example of chasing after something that you're passionate about or that you need and it's important. That makes sense. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the passion is your job. But I think that makes sense that there are circumstances where that passion can be and maybe is more optimally channeled in other aspects of one's yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the person who's has a, a standard nine to five job in an office, but then plays music in right. a band with his friends or her yeah. friends you know, on a weeknight. Yeah. Like, I think we have to figure out a way to to support and celebrate that. Yeah. Above and beyond just whoever's working at XYZ unicorn company or or tech company. Yeah. We definitely live 
especially here in Silicon Valley, in such an echo chamber. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I really appreciated about having the opportunity to travel around the world or even just around the United States yeah. and see so many different perspectives and different people. Yeah. That just reminds me, like some of the comments we get on our podcast, like you guys, and Zillow will remind me of this, our producer, like, yeah. yeah, you use too much tech lingo. There's too much Silicon Valley business talk here. And I yeah. think and I appreciate that because you, there is a language, a culture around tech, startups and yeah. financings and venture capital and building companies and changing the world. And I think that's starting to come to a head with the broader discussion on politics where I think we we're talking about this before we turn on the tape yeah. around regulation, pushback, is tech too big now? Obviously, as you've been at Google, Yahoo, some of yeah. the unicorn startups, yeah. what are your thoughts there? I mean, I think, I mean, obviously you've worked with some of the most prominent people at Google, Yahoo, all these name brand companies. Yeah. Maybe you could help unpack that or maybe reaffirm that these are super evil people or they're good hearted people. Maybe help translate what like the New York Times will write right. versus like, what you actually see on the inside, yeah. knowing these people as people. Yeah, wow, that's a big question. I mean, we <laughs> could have a whole podcast just yeah. on that topic itself. But Silicon Valley is, is a unique place and it has pros and cons. You know, for me, this was my home. I grew up here. I love it here, right? And I've really thrived from being around people who really set impossible goals for themselves and have benefited as an athlete and then also as somebody that's been a part of this community in the tech industry. Like, I think we have a responsibility as this community to do the right thing for the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And Google, like, you know, had this mantra of don't be evil. And really the story behind that, and I think it's pretty well known, but, you know, ultimately that was a group of people sitting in a room trying to make a decision around how to treat advertising results relative to organic search results. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of debate and everybody had a different point of view. And ultimately somebody said, hey, don't be evil. Like we should just not be evil. That should be the principle by which we make this decision because it's the right thing to do. Yep. I wasn't at Google when that happened, but obviously it was part of the culture. And it's ironic that now it's used against them, right? Almost to paint them out as like, hey, you guys said don't be evil, right? You're being self-righteous now. Right. And the scary thing is having been on the inside and read those New York Times articles and knowing the truth and the delta between the truth and what's written. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I am not a fan of journalism in general. I don't think that journalism was supposed to serve this purpose um, especially in the American culture and government of like checks and balances. Yep. It was supposed to be like the barometer or the limit, you know, set the limit on things. Yep. And I don't think that that's the case anymore. The tech industry is partly responsible for that, right? By measuring clicks and measure performance. And there's a discussion to be had around that. Maybe that's the discussion that should be front and center with regards to politics and Facebook and Google and data and privacy and all of that. Yeah, But it's interesting thinking about Google, I know how much information and data they're storing about people because I was there yeah. and I've seen the logs. Yeah. And ironically, I was part of the Google Plus team, which had to figure out a way to build an entirely new logging system that actually stored personalized information about you. Because up until then, Google was all about aggregated, non-personalized information and data. Yeah. And so that completely changed. But I had to become aware of the fact that even people in my own family are uncomfortable with how much information Google has 
and Facebook and other companies. Yeah. And I think that that's what we all need to focus on, right? It's like, I can't even convince my own family members that Google really does want to do the right thing, right? right? And wants to be very mindful and cognizant about what it does with their data. And there's things that I saw and experienced that have formed my opinion. Unfortunately, I can't share some of those things because they're confidential. Yeah. And the New York Times won't write about it in a way that is actually altruistic, right? They'll write about it in a way that gets the most clicks. Yep. And the funny thing is, I went through the same experience with U.S. Postal and Lance. The whole thing about taking Lance down, there is no positive outcome for anybody except for Travis Taggart and some of the government, right? And the only reason that we even know who Travis is is because he's the guy who took down Lance. The only reason that we know who Ken Starr is is because he's the guy who took down Clinton. Yeah. Right? There's a whole different agenda going on there. The funny thing is I was in races and I would read the race report from a journalist after the race. And I'd be like, that didn't happen. No, that's totally wrong. Yeah. So I started writing my own race reports. Right. Because I was like, I'm going to tell the real story about what happened inside. In fact, I'm going to give you a different angle and a different perspective, which I think is actually more interesting. Yeah. Which is, you know, this company that Lance and I started called We Do, which is the answer to the question, who wants to run 100 miles today? He has two podcasts, one called The Move, um, which is basically a post-race commentary. And the whole intent of that show is to say, here's what we saw really go down today. Yeah. Here's the insider perspective, because I think that that's interesting from an entertainment perspective, but from a journalistic perspective and how it relates to politics and the tech industry, what we really need to be asking ourselves is how does that relationship actually occur in a way that benefits society yep. and not just benefit either lobbyists or advertisers or the companies themselves with regards to what their stock price is. Right. Like that would be a conversation I would love to have. Yeah. And even and nobody's having it. And I think you hit the good point, which is the incentive of the journalist to win a Pulitzer, which basically means it's got to be juicy, meaty, right. got to have some blood, sport in it. I think that's the complication right now because yeah. can you have that objective media? Right. And if not, then do we just assume everyone has this opinion and yeah. everyone's going to be biased? And I yeah. think it's like, if you're a human, yeah. you're biased. Like yeah. I'm biased. I'm totally, I mean, look, I, I, 100% I'm biased about Google. Yeah. There's no question. People will listen to my comments or have a conversation with people and they would just, they would call me. Google paid them off, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, there, but look, I have a set of experiences. Yeah. Those experiences formed my beliefs and that's the point of view I have. Now, yeah. like I said, I have people in my family who have a completely different point of view. And I'm okay with that. And I think the opportunity is understand why they have a different point of view. Yeah. I just want to know, tell me why you think that this company is out to cause you harm or is not genuine, isn't actually doing something in your interest because I want to know about that. Yeah. You know, especially if I worked at Google, I'd really want to know about that. Yeah. And Facebook as well. Like, I think those are the two companies right now that are really in the crosshairs of this whole debate. Yeah. Having been on the inside of those companies, and I was inside Yahoo, right in the middle of the very well-known, famous kind of data breach, which at the time, you know, was like the largest data breach in history, which- Yeah, heard been, the acquisition price with like, yeah. right? It was like- which, Yeah, we had, exactly. So it's been a couple of years since that happened, but now it's like everyday news. It's no yeah. big deal, Yeah. right? The delta between what was written about that and the truth- about what was going on inside yeah. is huge. Yeah. And unfortunately, there isn't a way to actually make that known because everybody's in CYA mode. And it's funny because I think you see this 
pop up in all sorts of domains, right? Like mm-hmm. people say like paper record doesn't actually match reality. No. But I think you talk to journalists, I know personally, like a lot of journalists, I think they try to do their job. And it's just like, yeah. I think it's just hard. I'm sure you know a lot of reporters and journalists. And I think, yeah. I think they are trying to do their best possible job. But maybe it's like kind of arbitrary notion of objectivity, kind of like you have to project like what does mainstream think is objective and then maybe a lack of actual firsthand experience in the full context. I think makes that just very hard for someone who like kind of drops in. So the thing that I think has been so core to being a good product manager, yeah, right, which is you're ultimately trying to build an experience for a user for a purpose. Right. That's it in a nutshell, right? And I think for me, I've always been able to do that by having empathy. Much in the same way that I said that getting to understand somebody's real motivation is really important in getting teams to work well together or just working well one-on-one. I think that's the same, that level of empathy and understanding, even if you don't agree, is what we should be doing right now as a society with regards to politics, the news and companies and Wall Street and how that relationship. I think the smartest, most effective people with regards to how this relationship is getting managed between companies and press and journalism are the ones that are able to sit down and say, hey, look, you have an agenda, I have an agenda. Let's just be very clear and explicit about what that agenda is and then figure out a way that we can work together in such a way that we're actually providing real value to the person who's reading your article and to the person who's using my product. And if we can do that, we may not agree on everything, but at least we're doing something that's valuable. We're like actually making some sort of forward progress. But if you can't have that level of empathy for the journalist, and you know, to some degree I regret saying I don't like journalists or I don't like journalism, but the reality is you have to set aside your own ego or your company's ego and say, okay, you have a purpose here, you have a goal or an agenda, and I do too, let's figure it out together. Yeah. If we can do that, there's real symbiosis here. Right? Yeah. There's a way that this whole ecosystem works together. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head in terms of just like, think about like full band of communication. Just like, let's just talk about it for real. Like the subtext and like language and it's like actual meaning. It's hard to know when you can communicate at what level to which people, right? Well, have you ever heard two lawyers talk to each other? Like especially opposing lawyers? <laughs> it's so interesting. I remember the first time I heard it, it was so caught off guard because they're so matter of fact. Like, oh, hey, how's your kids? Baseball yeah. hey, game are you going to this weekend? And then like, okay, here's how this is going to go. Then they get down to business. Yeah. This is how this is going to play out, right? It's like a very clear structured set of rules about how this is going to be interpreted. Yeah. Here's my point of view. You disagree. Let's negotiate. And like they walk out of the room with an agreement. Yeah. And it's the craziest thing you've ever seen, <laughs> right? That particular industry has figured out how to do it right. Yeah. I think there's a nuance there. If we can figure out how That's to- actually an interesting analogy. That is a brutal situation, but that's just their job. They know that, hey, there's some- Yeah, they're like dealing with the, in some cases, like person's future life, yeah. like whether or not they're going to spend the rest of their life in jail or not. Yeah. And they kind of like use their experience. They use the context. They're unemotional. They're very yeah. objective about it, at yeah. least to the degree that they can be objective. Yeah. And they're like, okay. This like, here are your points. Here are our points. We see with any kind of dispute, there's some points on both sides yeah. that like have some credit. And it's like, okay. Right. Right. Get this resolved. I was so excited when I came in here, Jeff. Now I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> bummed out. No, but I think there's a lot of opportunity here. That's the way I see it. And I think if we focus on those things, if we prioritize that particular part of the conversation, you know, we're going to come out in a much better place than if we get stuck in this. Well, I think it's kind of a good pivot point to go back in the human performance and mindset, which is that transparency and that level of communication and honesty to the counterparty. Yeah. 
And like, I think it kind of pulls full circle. Like you need to have that counterparty or that you need to be as honest and brutally honest with yourself in yeah. terms of self-talk or like you're doubting yourself. Okay, how yeah. do you buffer yourself back up? Yeah, it's funny. One of the reasons I've been such a huge fan of the work you guys are doing, and I think there's a lot of other companies and individuals that are using a very similar approach, which is let's look at the data. Yeah. Let's look at the science. Let's take the subjectivity out of it. And like, let's be as real and genuine and authentic with our customers and the people that we're trying to appeal to. Right. Because it's a more convincing, more persuasive approach than what celebrity you pay to use your product. Right which is the traditional path, right? Yeah. Or, you know, the anecdotes um, that come from people that are basing their experience on science and data and the structure that comes from that. It's just such a refreshing approach. And for me, it, it resonates because I feel like that has been the approach that I have always been attracted to. Even yeah, early days. Yeah, I don't think it's even being smart. It's just like, I think what you and I both cut out in terms of the cloth, it's like, I don't want shit that doesn't work. Right. Let's just be real to what the data says and what the evidence says. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think you got to get credit to the customer. I think people are smarter. Totally. And they're willing to do the work. This time is so exciting for me because now it's not just about athletes that are trying to yeah. be the fastest, right? It's really around how do we live the best life? Yep. How are we the best parents that we can be, the best friends, the best employee, the best manager, yeah. best person, the best member of our community? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So yeah. obviously you were very metrics driven in your athletic career. Now with more and more technology, Aura Ring we mentioned, yeah. what are you optimizing now? I mean, I think there was a New York Times article about how Jack Dorsey mm -hmm. is this influencer in terms of dictating lifestyle just as much as Hollywood celebrities are dictating lifestyle choices. Yeah. Now there's biohacking Jack Dorsey, who's Twitter CEO and yeah. other biohacker types who are studying lifestyle culture. Curious to hear, are you applying some of these techniques in your personal life? What are you measuring? What are you tracking? Totally. Uh, what so are you I, up to these days? I'm such For me, it's the same pursuit, right? Like just really trying to get the most out of what I have. You know, with technology, there's all these tools that give us a better feedback mechanism, trying to understand the difference or identifying the difference between correlation and causation, which again is so critical to when you're building a product and you're trying to figure out why did this happen? Right. Or, you know, when we did this, did it do what we expected it to do? Right. And I think the crossover there is so clear to me. I obviously don't compete at the same level that I did before, but I still love competing. I love the experience of competing. So you're still racing? Cycling? No, not not racing as much formally. Yeah. Um, although last year and, and the year before, got together with a couple of my former teammates, Lance, George, and Christian, and we did a 24-hour mountain bike race in Tucson. And it was like a relay. It was fun because we felt like juniors again. Like yeah. we were all nervous and excited and, you know, we trained really hard and we prepared <laughs> and we're like, what kind of tires are we yeah. going to use? And we got into all the details again. But at the same time, we were there just to have fun. Yeah. Is this Crush It or is this a super pro event or? It's more of what I would call a participant event, kind okay. of like Ironman or okay, a marathon, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And so you have people that are like at the very, very top of the yeah, sport. Yeah. And then you have people that are, they're just like, I just want to finish this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's actually what made this event and many events like this, this really exciting and fun for us because 
we could compete to however much we wanted to, but yeah. then at the same time, get stop at the whiskey. Enjoy the experience. Thing yeah. and take a shot of whiskey and enjoy yeah. the whole experience. Um, so, I, but you know, I still love to do that. I, I've completely become a morning person mm. because it's generally the, the only time that I have to work out and I have to work out. I love working out. It's yeah. still like, it's my church. It's where I solve all of my problems. Waking up like what, six? Are you like- Five o'clock. Five o'clock, okay. Yeah, five o'clock pretty regularly. Alarm clock or just like your circadian rhythm? No, I have to use an alarm clock. Okay. But I've definitely gotten into, you know, like I am definitely a sleep princess, like earplugs, eye mask, cold room. You know, I try to like get away from my computer and my phone as early as possible. Yeah. You know, I try to do a lot of those things just to really get the best sleep, drink a lot more water. I mean, again, it's funny. I wish I would have known all these things when I was an athlete. I think I would have been, you know, 10 times better (laughs) just focusing on these things or just understanding the impact and effect on on overall things. How about nutrition? Are you looking at fasting, intermittent fasting? Yeah. Drinking carbohydrate or cycling between keto and non? I love intermittent fasting. Okay. And I cycle between, you know, either zero carbs or super low carbs on days where I'm not very active. Yep. And then days where I am super active, I'll, fuel eat, up. I'll eat carbohydrates. But re- I try to focus on like really high quality, clean carbohydrates, you know, which is ironic given that we, you know, we used to, we used to carry around these boxes of stuff called Extran. Okay. It was basically straight glucose. Okay. And we would use it like in the last hour of the race. Just downing sugar. Just downing sugar. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And now in hindsight, looking back on that, the nutrition has completely changed. It's so much different. Yeah. So yeah, I I guess you'd call it targeted keto. Yeah. And while I appreciate the effects that it has on my body composition, because I have to pay a lot more attention to that than I used to, I actually really like the clarity that I get from it. And I feel like the words come easier to me. My brain just works better. And that's where I really discovered some of your products. Yeah. And yeah, I just think there's just a lot of interesting things to do. I could go on a whole different rant. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that I'm a parent, but just seeing what our kids eat. And I was at the soccer game the other day. My son plays soccer and the team before us, the whole team gets off the field and there's rows and rows and rows of McDonald's Happy Meals and Gatorade and these little hostess cupcakes. Wow. And I'm just like, I just can't believe that. Yeah. It's so shocking and at the same time so depressing. So American, right? That's, if we yeah. can really educate people about what they eat and how it impacts their lives, we have a chance at changing behavior. For example, with my own kids, I've tried to get them to understand the connection between food and performance. Yep. My daughter, when she gets upset about the fact that she struggles in math or she feels like she can't do the math problems fast enough, I say, well, did you drink any water in the morning? Like, what did you have for breakfast? Did you have pancakes or did you have eggs and some some yogurt? And so I'm trying to get them to understand this correlation between what they eat and how they perform versus good food and bad food. Right. Like, oh, that's bad for you. Try telling a kid that a piece of chocolate cake is bad for them. Right. They do not hear what you're saying. Yeah. They do not care. You're training them to think about just input the system. Yeah. Versus like, I'm going to give you a dogmatic sense of random arbitrary rules that I don't really understand right now. That's right. And so like when my son wants to play soccer and he wants to be really good at it and I'm like, okay, let's go to sleep early. Yeah. Let's think about what we're going to have before the game. Let's think about what we're going to have after the game. Yeah. And just trying to arm them with those tools and understand the correlation between what you put in your body and how you perform. There's tons of causal evidence. Yeah. I mean, it just reminds me like a computer science analogy with machine learning. 
as opposed to writing rules. I mean, you know, AI used to be defined by rules, like right. you do this or in this case, do this. Yeah. And the new methods, statistical methods, you're giving them data points. Mm-hmm. You don't tell them the rule. The rule is self-evident from all the data that's being ingested. Yeah. It sounds like you're essentially, I don't know if this is like the way you thought about it, but you're essentially, you know, machine learning training them by giving them data points versus don't eat hostesses or whatever. Yeah. I definitely don't proclaim to be applying a machine learning model to my <laughs> children. And I'm sure if my wife heard this, she'd kill me. But that's my approach. Yeah. Because I'm not going to get through to them with rules. Yeah. I have to arm them with the tools to understand the correlation or the causation and, the, and cause and effect and all of yeah. that. I think the whole movement around functional medicine and functional health is really fascinating to me because it's no longer about treating a disease. And it's all about like, how do we get you into the best state that you can be in? How do yeah. we optimize you? Yeah. Not only does that personally excite me, um, for my own personal ambition, but I also think it's going to have a really positive effect on our community yeah. and people. Yeah, There's just so much benefit to come from that. One of the last questions I always ask, and yeah. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, is if you had infinite resources and infinite guinea pig humans, population you want to study, mm-hmm. what would the setup be? What research project would you want to run? I would want to do something like, is it the biosphere? Wasn't there this study that they yeah, did in the they, Arizona? Yeah, they, a little like, uh, yeah, a biosphere, where a little... They, where they basically created this self-contained... Yeah, they had to farm their own food and yeah. and purify their own waste. I remember reading about it and there was a mishap with production. So there right. wasn't enough food, so people were yeah. calorically restricted. It's an interesting little experiment. If I could do something like that, that would then create data and information and anecdotes that people would really gravitate towards and say, okay, yeah, like this makes sense. I get it. I believe this. Yeah. In to the degree that it could help them understand things like when you're at the start line of a race, tell yourself how good you feel, even if you feel like crap, right? Or if you want to do this or that, drink more water. Or if you want to feel better, you want to sleep better. Like if we can figure out a way to get that mindset to be mainstream, I just feel like all boats rise with that time. Yeah, level up society, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Level (laughs) up society. As the product manager, I'd have to think about what the roadmap would look like. <laughs> what do we have to launch Time along line, the way what resources you need to yeah. get there, right? Yeah. Because it's not easy. If it were easy, we'd already be there. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of interesting things to come in the future, especially as we get better about measuring and storing data. I think also, I actually love history now because you can go back and you see these patterns that have repeated themselves over and over yeah. and over and over. Like, can we figure out a way to like stop doing the same dumb thing over and over? I don't think so because people die and then they don't read history. So, and, right. <laughs> so like it has to be a different curriculum, right? Yeah. Or a different way of that vicarious lesson. Yeah. So who knows, maybe there's something interesting to do there. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a fascinating conversation. So where do <laughs> people follow along? What are you up to next? I know you have Twitter. <laughs> Where do people find I, you? I have Dylan Casey everywhere because okay. I was an early adopter of For just everything. about everything. Yeah. So whether it's Instagram or Twitter. And I'm super easy to get in touch with. Just one quick little story. I broke my pelvis and my collarbone one year in a horrible crash. Okay. I was already contracted to write a bunch of articles for bicycling. And I was going to be doing some races. And it was supposed to be about the races. Well, I crashed. And so they said, well, you know, do you want to just write about your recovery? And I was like, sure, whatever, because they were paying me. And so I'd write these articles and the articles were just all totally focused about me and what I was doing to get better and how I was recovering from my training. I was almost angry about it. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, whatever. And I got this really, this really heartfelt email from somebody who said, you know, Dylan, I had the same exact accident 
and reading your articles about what you were doing to overcome your accident were so inspiring to me. I was so shocked because I was like, what? I mean, I can do something that is so self-serving and selfish and help other people at the same time. I want to do this more. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that that was great, right? And so I've really come to appreciate and get a lot of personal satisfaction out of helping people. And I wouldn't have gotten here or accomplish the things that I've been able to accomplish if it weren't for a lot of people helping me along the way. So I really try to help as many people as I possibly can. Yeah, You can reach me, pretty easy to find. I'm hoping in my next go around, whatever my next job is, because I'm kind of in between right now on the proverbial beach, gives me the opportunity to do that. Uh, This is one of my five favorite conversations. Thanks so much, Dylan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable visit go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.